What is going on? Welcome to The Land Podcast. This week, we have a very interesting episode. It is with Beth Hoffman. She wrote a book called Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. It was a very interesting book. I ran across that at a bookstore, picked it up, and sent her an email, and she agreed to hop on here. So we talk a lot of different things. Some of it's regenerative farming. Some of it's just the state of agriculture uh, and from her perception. And also, we talk a little bit about land values as well. So I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. It's a little bit different. Um, always great to expand your horizons here, the people's perspectives, and I thank Beth for doing so. And for some reason, the audio on my end is not as high quality as normal. Um, the microphone wasn't working, and I didn't realize that until today <laughs> when, I, when I'm recording this intro. So I apologize, but the conversation is definitely thought-provoking, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And also, Exodus has Velvet Fest rocking and rolling. You can save 15% off the entire website by using the code BFEST23. And we have special deals every single Friday going to your email. So keep an eye out for that. And if you're brand new to the podcast here, it's really simple. Help 100 people buy their first piece of ground. We've had, it's about a steady steady two-ish people a week reach out and say, hey, um, it helped me. Thank you, which is really cool to hear. So just want to say thanks to everyone that has uh, let me know that there is a level of impact from this podcast because it is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And... I'm just gonna give. I'm just gonna give a quick subtle plug to Acres Mapping Software. I was looking at a bunch of different farms here this last week and looking around, and I'm telling you, it is just such a great tool for learning a farm very quickly. And you can look at the FSA data, you can look at the uh, historical imagery. It's just so compact and easy to use, and it's a great starting point. So, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. Beth, welcome to the Land Podcast. How's it going today? I'm great. How about you? I'm doing really well. And uh, we were just talking. So ran across your book at a bookstore in Iowa. Made a quick trip out there. And uh, there's usually not a ton of good literature on kind of the history of farming and the state of it. And maybe some of the, the pitfalls of shortcomings or different things that basically everyone has to deal with in one capacity or another. And uh, saw your book in the display, dove right into it, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, so I just want to say thanks for hopping on here today. But go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone who's not familiar. Yeah, my name is Beth Hoffman. Um, I wrote uh, the book called Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Um, the little backstory is, is I grew up a mainly suburban kid in New Jersey um outside of manhattan i uh you know then i moved to many different places but all kind of city and suburbia um and then i moved to uh actually go to school grad school at berkeley school of journalism and there i met my uh now husband and he probably within the first five minutes actually of me meeting him um i met him and he said oh i just was in iowa uh, with my kids visiting the farm and I'm going to be moving back there as soon as they're, uh, grown. And so, um, that was like my first introduction to him. And, you know, I kind of, I, I, I actually probably couldn't have identified Iowa on a map at that time. <laughs> uh, accurately, I knew it was in the Midwest, but I knew nothing about the Midwest. Um, so I didn't think much of it, but then, um, you know, we fell in love, we got married, we, the, and the kids grew as kids tend to do. And, um, when you're lucky and, 
uh yeah and then it was kind of about time to be making this move back to taking over the farm and at that point i had been reporting on food and agriculture for about 20 years i i went was like a old grad student and um so i thought i knew quite a bit about food and agriculture and it turned out i did not know much of anything once i was doing it so the book was written, I mean, it's interesting that you say, you know, there's not a lot of literature out there about farming um, and food. And, I, you know, I would add the caveat to that is that, you know, I, I think there is a fair amount of literature about it, but a lot of it is very doom and gloom about everything that's going wrong with agriculture right now. And I really felt like I had not read anything that really was fair to farmers um, of all kinds. And even though I was reporting a lot on sustainability and different kinds of practices and those in that kind of realm, um, once I was out here and talking to John's dad, who had run this farm for 50 years, you know, I just started really realizing that there were a lot of very good reasons why people were doing what they were doing, namely growing corn and beans, and that I had not heard that story. And I had not really heard or learned the story about the economics of agriculture. Yeah. Um, and one that was empathetic to farmers. Sure. How did you originally get into journalism and then in that subcategory of journalism, too? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was always kind of a a writer, you know, as a kid. That was where what I did, um, read and and wrote. And then, you know, I I I went to college and I was an anthropology major actually because I I just loved culture and meeting people. And so I think it was a natural outgrowth of that is to go into uh, journalism where uh, where what whoever I was interested in, whatever I was interested in, I could just call up people and talk to them and do what you're doing, you know, just like, Oh, that's interesting. I want to know more. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a, it's a great career for that, for just being curious. And I'm, I'm kind of a curious skeptic type. I don't really believe anything I hear. Um, and so, <laughs> that's a good journalism trait, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I really wanted to know more and learn more about a lot of things. Um, and I also just, uh, I think I, I first started, really doing some journalism on food and the the cultural connections and identity kind of connections people have to food because of course it's a huge part of our cultures no matter where you're from um and your identity for many many people is just around sharing food over the table and growing food um so that kind of also i think was a natural avenue and i just i love food so it was it was in the logical place to go. How hard of a transition because you were out in San Francisco and then end up in Monroe County, Iowa. How hard of a transition was that for you? Because I, I grew up in a rural community. That's all I know. That's that's what I really enjoy. I lived in the suburbs of Chicago for like a year and a half. That was enough. And uh, and so I mean, there's probably I mean I'm sure there's more stark differences. Like San Francisco to Monroe County, Iowa is drastically different. So how was that? Been? Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
Well, I guess I'll preface it by saying that I don't know that I could live again full time in a city. Um, so that is to say that when I, as soon as I was out here, um, any length of time and especially like living and sleeping and, and realizing that the quiet of this, of being in a natural environment, of just having the sounds of birds, of crickets, of frogs, of, um, that, that was something I didn't realize how much I needed. It's, it's really grounding. It's really good for the soul, you know, to just be in that kind of a place that you're not hearing human sounds very often. Of course, there was a plane flying over my my head as I was in the garden yesterday all day, um, spraying the neighbor's fields. So, you know, that only goes so far. But um, it's a really wonderful thing. I think that the the difficulties arise in having to drive a lot, like driving for every, you know, everything is a 30-minute drive, an hour drive to go deliver um, fruits and vegetables and you know, that kind of um, car time is not something I really love. So that's very different. And I think, um, you know, uh, and now I would say one of the biggest differences, I mean, it, it was a slow, it's a, it's a hard thing. Sorry, I'm kind of babbling. It is a hard thing to, especially because some of these communities don't have much left to them. You know, they've been gutted by kind of farms getting larger and larger and bankruptcies and all of those kinds of things that there's not places to gather. So it's hard to meet people even because there's no like coffee shop or a place where people come together. And I guess that that mainly happens through church um, and you know, I grew up Jewish. I'm not, it, that's another, you know, oddity <laughs> of me in this place for sure. Um, I think a lot of people have never met someone who is Jewish before. So that's kind of a, I'm a novelty. Um, but no local synagogue. yeah, yeah and there's no local synagogue. Yes. <laughs> so, um, although there is in Des Moines, but, um, so th those are, those are very different things. And I think, that kind of um, religious element because it's a meeting place and it's the gathering place for communities. It's also become such a huge component of rural America. I think that John doesn't remember it being that way when he was a kid, but I think that because there's nowhere to go and no place for people to get together outside of that, it's grown and grown and grown to be really a centerpiece of people's lives. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I think what's also interesting is obviously transitioning to the farm. And I know that was reading through the book, it was kind of a, a longer process of figuring out and nailing down a plan. Because uh, as you mentioned, um, your former father-in-law farmed it for 50 years and it was, it's a fifth generation farm too. Yes. John's and, fifth generation. Yep. And so what was it like? Because it went predominantly from cash crops and, and cattle going to the auction to when you guys try to make some of these different changes. And I remember reading some of the struggles of trying different crops that you, in theory sounded good and then it didn't pan out. What were some of the biggest misconceptions of you who reported on this forever, John who grew up on it, 
And then when you come back and try to implement a plan of what was some of the misconceptions of like, wow, this is a lot harder than what I, what I imagined. Or yeah. if we draw a, a financial forecast, it doesn't always plan out or pan out that way. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a big dramatic difference. So um, yes, just to clarify, like we live in uh, South central Iowa, it's rolling Hills, actually lots of, I'm looking out the window, just trees and Hills. So, so you are in a very coveted whitetail area. So these guys are coveted. Yes, these guys are whitetail hunters. Yep. So they can definitely picture it in their head. So yeah, exactly. Picture, yep. That's where we are. We're not in flat, flat Iowa. You know, uh, purpose per, perfect. You know, corn su suitability rating areas. So, um, but that said you know, the, the predominant agriculture is still corn, beans, cattle, um, with an emphasis of maybe cattle a little bit more than, you know, any, any other, other parts of Iowa. Um, so when we took over the farm, you know, we really weren't interested in conventional agriculture. Oh, just also the backstory is that John grew up here left here, um, went to University of Iowa, but then moved out to the Bay Area to go to culinary school. He's a trained chef. He then um, worked in white tablecloth restaurants for many years and then was a butcher for 12 years after that. So <clears throat> combined, our food knowledge was quite a lot, but he also was in San Francisco through the 90s watching agriculture change there and watching the organic movement uh, come to being and learning so much about it. He worked at um, Whole Foods is where he was trained as a butcher. So, you know, we really were not interested in conventional agriculture from the get-go. Um, we, we, we just had been immersed in this other world and didn't really see a reason for conventional agriculture on the farm, especially because we're not going to get huge yields of corn in this area. So, um, so we decided to take all that out to have it all planted in uh, hay or and pasture, and to work on our um, cattle herd. Um, we decided we we thought that we would sell like at the sale barn and just do conventional cattle raising. Um, and then we almost immediately just decided, let's just go for it and, and grass finish grass, you know, better on pasture their whole lives. Um, and so as a result of that and rotating them every day, so we do a, a pretty, um, hardcore regenerative agriculture system here. So the cattle move every day, we've added goats who are amazing for this environment. Um, they just, they devour all of this underbrush, the multi-floor rows and the honeysuckle that's kind of clogged up all of the forest here. That's their favorite thing to eat. So we transitioned to that. Um, in that process, John's dad thought we were a bit crazy, which is a, a large part of the book is about all that kind of relationship and tension and trying to do something different on the land. Um, but I, I guess the biggest thing that we've learned over this time, and again, because I'm a skeptic, I always thought, even when I was reporting on sustainable agricultural methods, I always kind of had this like, 
okay, if it's so great, why isn't everybody doing this? It was the catch here. And it's not really um, economic in terms of like, at the end of the day, how much you're going to take home. Um, in fact, like even for organic row crops, like they're, they're making much more money than conventional farmers. Um, and, but, you know, for us, uh, it really is the, the catch is labor. Just it's in a tremendous amount of time and labor to be moving cattle all the time. Um, it's it's more than maybe one person can do and ha and be able to also because we have to do all the other parts of the business as well because we're not selling at the at the sale bar that means we need to find customers we need to deal with the processor we need to distribute we need you know everything marketing mm -hmm. so it's a lot of labor and that's so why that don't do it. But so that I think was, there are some ways, there's a few ways around that, that, uh, you know, um, we can also talk about. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. So, um, so labor was one of the most large uh, misconceptions of how much actual time and work it takes, but there was a snippet in your book that caught my attention. So in 1930, it took 28 hours of labor to work a acre of corn in the 60s and went down to seven. And then today it's closer to two hours. For your organic operation, would you could you quantify how many hours it takes to, you know, utilize an acre? And I know you're not planting corn, but just yeah. to quantify it. Yeah. So we never got organically certified. We haven't really found that that's a needed thing with the cattle. People are much more interested, I think, in it being pasture raised sure. than having an official certification. So just to clarify that from the book, because it's not um, by the end of the book, we, it, we hadn't really decided. Um, you know, I would say that like uh, so today i mean i think john we have a somebody working with us um on most days there's somebody here working with us now so i think john they went out at i think they left at seven it's now 11 they're not back you know so that that's a pretty average day i would say four to five hours with two people at least um we have you know if we're talking about cows calves and yearlings because it takes a longer amount of time for them to grass finish so with all of them there's maybe 90 to 100 cows um uh you know steers and whatever all all everybody who fits under that cow <laughs> yep. um and we have right now let's say um also let's say 60 goats so that that's you know four or five hours per person so eight hours a day mm -hmm. um i think is pretty fair if you also are including like we had a goat that was limping so then because they're out in the field you've got to like invent a whole way to catch one or you know if you have a hurt cow you've got to bring them all the way back in to so there's those kinds of things are also more labor intensive than a, them being in a lot and you just, you know, yeah. walk it 10 feet over to where you can look at it, you know? Uh -huh. So would you say 
by doing it, this approach, does it feel like you're jumping in a time machine going a hundred years back or not quite as bad? Um, not at all. No? I, I wouldn't say that. I feel that at all because, um, there's a lot of technology that's involved in it. There's the fencing, um, you know, solar fencers, solar waterers, um, things that really help make the whole process available um, and possible. I would also say that if we had broadband, which we don't, if we had broadband, uh, we could also take a step towards um having no fence like the electric oh, yeah. satellite yeah. um fencing systems that um many people have started using mm -hmm. and so that would be a huge time saver as well um once it was rolling uh because you know you wouldn't have to be out there moving the fences manually all the time but yeah i don't i don't think we feel at all like it doesn't feel quaint and homesteady and you know uh -huh. like i'm gonna churn my butter here very much um especially because it's all internet based all the marketing and you yeah. know contacting people so yeah okay that's fair it feels that... very 2020s okay all right very good <laughs> i gotta clarify because i think yeah. it's probably a misconception or it, maybe that's a self-perceived misconception that when you when you when you frame what you do, people I think make assumptions that that is the case. So that was kind of the the main reason yes. I asked. Yes, I think so. And there's people who do that. You know, they're out um, on horseback and like, yeah, we're not we don't do that. Okay, so there's I mean, there's a lot of different notes that I had here, but were there any other misconceptions that you guys have really? nailed down here in the last couple of years, especially as you, you know, have been there for, let's say four years, like really rolling out. I'm going to have to think about that one. I don't or know. What's one, or, what's a, or what's one mistake you won't make again? Ooh, one mistake. Well, um, you know, I think that there's, we were just talking about this last night, like, uh, just I, I think it's more it's it's just a cultural difference like John growing up on a farm understands livestock he's grown up with it uh he's okay with like you look out in the field and you go oh that cow's limping well I'll check back in a couple of days I'll keep my eye on it right and I grew up suburban kid who like you know your cat sneezes and you run to the vet and you, you know, unload a bunch of money there at the vet and give them drugs and special diets and, you know. Um, and so there's a bit of a, that's a bit of an adjustment for me that's been harder than you would think because uh, there, you know, these are animals that we care for. And I sit up at night worrying um, about it because, you know, there have been horrific accidents where we've lost animals already. That's things that, you know, you also don't encounter death like that. You think you're in control in suburbia. <laughs> like you think, you think you can control the environment, you mow it, you spray it, you know, you kind of, you know, and that's, it's not reality, especially in this kind of system. So we're trying to find a happy medium between us and trying to have sort of just like 
protocols of like, how do we get that limping goat? Like we, I, it can't just go a week and then she's really sick, you know? Um, so I would say those are things that we're trying to not do again, so to speak, and not, um, and also just like, when I wrote about this in the, my blog um, recently about we had some, our bulls got out and like, we're like a mile and a half down the road. And uh, <laughs> it was a pretty tense, intense situation. It was getting very late in the day. We didn't even know they were out. And we had to, you know, they're like in um, six foot tall poison ivy is where they, of course, decided to hang out in a creek bottom and so um you know that environment can just be so intensively stressful and you start you know we start going at it with each other and flipping <laughs> at each other and and it's just you really have to learn i think being on a farm really teaches you this other different level of having to remain calm and take things step by step and just make decisions and work through things in ways that I haven't had to do in my life before that. Yeah. I can imagine that. I think, uh, yeah, just given your background, I, I, I grew up on a small deer farm, so I know exactly what you're talking about of, uh, like just the things that are out of your control or, uh, or we raised whitetails and then, one of the big deer, you know, snapped their neck on the fence. And it's like, well, that was out of our control. It sucks, but there's nothing yep. we can do. And so uh, you do, I feel build, build a callus of handling that. It's never really easy, but you do, I feel, form some form of callus to it. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, you're like, okay, what do we do about this fence? Right? Like we did, we had a deer got stuck in the barbed wire and we've seen also a hawk and we we decided we signed up with the NRCS for a program to change out all the barbed wire like we just don't it, it's not good for the wildlife um let's get rid of it so but again that's a lot more labor mm -hmm. uh that gets involved but yeah it's you have to i don't know just realize that life has those really really intense moments as well i guess you learn that as a kid you know which is probably good right well so you mentioned in the book of, of navigating government programs and there's a there's a bunch of them uh, my wife works for the fsa so some of the comments in there made me laugh <laughs> talk to her about it and she's like, yeah that's kind of, that's basically right and so um and even some of the the programs you covered like those are her programs so it's fun to have dialogue about that but um what have you learned trying to navigate some of those things because there's a lot of different things out there and it's interesting because california produces uh, i just googled a little bit ago three quarters of all fruit in the country and like a third of the vegetables so an fsa office there is going to be much more familiar with some of the things you guys you know are doing where you're at but what what was that like trying to figure out what what could be available to help you and then maybe any misconceptions about um, what farmers have or the backing that farmers have with some of the government infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that's a really tough one because I mean, like I, I show in the book, it's, you know, you, you walk in there and you want to do anything different and they kind of just, they have no idea even how to 
kind of how, how to deal with you. You know, they recommended that we go to a different county and talk to some guy who grew organic something. I don't know. And, and that was their answer to us is like, that's all we can provide you. And no, there's no programs for organic and no, there's really nothing for, you know, trees or anything. And of course there were, there are, there are things that, um, in the, you know, even in the farm bill now, I, I feel like there's going to be increasing conservation programs over time. And those are all things that people who are doing organics are interested in. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very, I, again, try to really, um, empathize. I, I'm not pointing fingers and saying that anybody is, is not doing their job or it's, it's just a kind of a no win situation in those jobs because they're understaffed. The rules are constantly changing. You know, you have a new farm bill every five or who knows when it'll happen next, but, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's a constantly changing thing. And then they throw in like, oh, it's a new, new, um, computer program now. And there's a different ranking situation. And, um, I really, really think that one of the huge things, you know, we're in a farm bill cycle right now. There's a lot of wrangling going on, of course, about it, but I really would love to see more money in extension and in, um, NRCS offices and FSA offices at the USDA, I would love to see them have programs and money for more hiring, for figuring out some of the hiring, like the hiring system itself doesn't even make sense because they do it at a state level. And then, you know, nobody like you want to work where you live. So why would I not just apply at my local office? Why do I have to apply to the state and then wait until I'm like assigned, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So I really think that that could have a huge impact on the ability for people to do different things on their land. You know, I, I really, I really passionately believe that we're in a situation that the climate is changing. <laughs> Let's be clear. It is changing. There is, there is weather difficulties, more extreme. We're having more drought. We're having more floods. We have to figure out how to have more things grown everywhere. Like we can't be just in this system of just like the whole state of Iowa. Everyone's going to do the same thing. And we're all going to be hoping for the best prices and planning for the government to kind of bail us out when it doesn't work out, which mm -hmm. if you look at the charts, it doesn't work out more than it works out. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge cost to our, you know, our, our tax paying public. It's, it's like, you can't, we can't have a system where agriculture is just dependent upon taxpayers bailing out farmers. And the way that we can do that is to say, you know, okay, uh, there's a multitude of things we can be growing here at the same time. We don't have to rely 90% in Iowa, 90% of our fruits and vegetables are imported. We have some of the most fertile land in the whole world. California is dry and on fire. Where do we think that's going to come from? Right. And it's it's something that we could be growing here, but we don't have the kind of support that we need. Mm -hmm. 
So we have a county office of every FSA, every NRCS office is in every county and extension. Let's use these offices to get information and programs to farmers mm -hmm. and give people opportunity and options. We don't, we don't all have to do the same thing. Yeah, you kind of highlight some of the conundrums with that, uh, like keeping up with the neighbors. And then also, there's a lot of really interesting points that I hadn't really considered before. One of them specifically was talking about selling cattle at a sale barn and how that market is basically owned by four companies. And you, then you start just looking at everything and it's just everything. And I feel like any industry that gets conglomerated is bad for the, I would say the end consumer, number one. And also the people that are producing, whatever that is. And so um, my background's in trail cameras and we, you know, we manufacture trail cameras. And so it's a very similar situation to where, you know, the conglomerates buy uh, these different competitors. And then it's a, uh, there's only a small, small minority of independent trail camera manufacturers. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. And just looking at how that impacts hog prices, cattle prices, and then everything else is like, wow, it's, it was pretty fascinating to, to really understand, I felt, I feel most people would just, yeah, they, at service level, they'd say, yeah, that's how it is. But I don't think they truly understand the impact of how that, and how it changes it for everything, for everyone. Yeah, right. And how it impacts individual people, right? Yes. It actually impacts those of us who are trying to raise things and grow things um, and, and to grow like nutritious things. I mean, think about, uh, you know, for all of people you know, enjoying their sodas and potato chips and whatever. Like we can't really survive on that. We we have to have a multitude of products that we're eating. It just would make our our society a lot healthier overall, right? Our medical costs would be much lower, our pharmaceutical costs, all of it. So um, you know, and to just to see how that plays out on the ground, you know, that was really my aim was to say, this is the story of us moving here, but this is the story about the economics of agriculture, the history of agriculture, um, and how it impacts people because it entirely does. Mm -hmm. You know, there's things, there's people. It's not just, it's not just, uh, you know, and, and if we're all growing the same thing, you know, you add to that, like it's a conglomerate's purchasing, right? In this environment, you have, you know, Cargill, Mm -hmm. basically is who's purchasing everything that's grown right so you have you know one buyer and everybody growing the same thing it's and like a, PS, of a free market right and ps it's on the most valuable some of the most valuable land in the world so how where is an return on investment even if you're making six dollars you know a bushel on your corn if you paid $12,000 an acre, $20,000 an acre, you know, good luck. So, and there's people that, that have done that. And I think you, you talk about being land rich, cash poor, which um, you have statistics on kind of like, I don't know if you have direct statistics on that, but it, it, I think that's a very common thing that most people can understand because of that financial model you just laid out doesn't really work out on paper. And do you have any... Do you have any feedback on that thought as I just kind of laid out there? Well, you know, people have said to me, um, which I think is a, it's a valid critique, is just that, you know, well, when you look at um, 
you know, and I'm not remembering offhand because now it's been several years, but I think it's like 2019, the median income for farmers was like $230. It was under 300. Yeah, under $300. And that's the median. So half of all farms in the country have made less than, you know, let's say $300. So, um, you know, and the critique people say is, well, you know, on farms, there's a lot of like hiding of money, there's tax breaks and people are, are buying land to kind of, you know, like have tax, I, I don't, you know, schedule, fill out schedule F forms and then be able to deduct everything they have. And so then at the end of the day, you really are making money, but it doesn't look like you're making money. And my response to that is that, no, if you're farming, it actually takes that kind of money to put into it. You're not just hiding money. That $500,000 combine is something that you actually need to be doing the job of farming. And, you know, especially if it's like you're in northern Iowa with lots and lots of land and, uh, you know, probably leasing land and it, there's a lot of costs. And I was just at the um, well, last year, I was at the South Dakota Book Festival and a young woman who's taking over her family's farm. Um, and she said, yeah, you know, we're one of those farms that's we're huge. We get huge government payments. Right. So everyone would say, oh, those are, you know, farms are making so much money. And she said, you know what? That money is right out the door. We have constant cash flow problems. So, you know, I think that it's something that we really have to pay attention to because if the wealthiest, you know, quote unquote, all those farms that are making, the half of farms that are making well over the $300 and the few that are making well, well over, you know, $300, millions of dollars a year, if they are completely dependent upon government payment, like what kind of business is that? I, I, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that could be called a sustainable, viable business. Do you? And I, under, I, I, but at the same time, we need some kind of subsidies and things so that if we have bad years, farmers don't go out of business. That we need a safety net. There's no doubt about that. But I think the allocation of it and the reliance upon it is now the problem. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and I, I don't, so during, the, there's a, a snippet in there that talked about some uh, legislation that FDR passed and basically where the government would buy crops and then basically Cargill during the JFK uh, presidency, they lobbied to where it reversed that. Do you think looking back, that was detrimental to the farming business? Yeah, there's this uh, whole movement of parity and saying that um, when the government got involved and, and helped um, by creating stockpiles and, and surplus, taking in surplus so as to balance out the supply and the demand of commodities so that, you know, the the prices for commodities would stay quite high as a result, not needing to constantly support farmers when the prices drop low. 
Um, the problem with that became that it was enormously expensive also because you had to pay for all of the storage. Mm -hmm. So like John's dad had grain bins here, and I think this was common practice, and you got paid to store your, your own grain. Um, you know, uh, to me, um, and, and there's a whole movement afoot about re going, having parody again, um, having, there's, um, George Naylor, um, a lot of people here in Iowa are very involved in that. I, I can see the benefits of that, but at the same time, I would love there to be a system that really takes into account the marketability and the saleability of products. So in most other industries, you'd have to look out on the horizon and, you know, make some guesses as to like, what are people going to buy? How much of each thing, you know, should we, we make and, and try and predict the, the market and create, you know, some, some of it is creating markets What's happened here is, is that now it's all dependent upon creating markets, right? Like the whole ethanol craze is creating markets for corn um, so that it keeps the price high. And the, the other costs that become involved in it, like are we, are we, you know, we're talking here and in Illinois as well about putting in these massive pipelines to cart ethanol, you know, around and cart the, so that it could go up to, they can sink the carbon to make it actually carbon neutral so that it makes some sense to have ethanol in the first place. But at what cost are we doing that? Like, again, taxpayers are going to be subsidizing that. So we're subsidizing the corn, we're subsidizing the pipeline, uh, you know, and so, and ripping up people's land, people don't want it in this state. It's been, it's been fought against, you know, in a massive movement of farmers, uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents, nobody really is excited about it. So, you know, I think it just becomes the situation where we've got to actually be, in my mind, if, if farmers had more opportunity if I could think about it and say, you know what, I think I'm going to put 10 acres in trees. I'm going to have some conservation land. I'm going to grow some apples. I'm going to um, maybe grow carrots or something else. I'm going to, you know, a variety of things, because if there was the support and knowledge there that I could have the education to do it, I could have government employees that might help me put things in and learn how to do it. I could have the distribution system that was already set up where grocery stores were moving throughout the state, picking things up and mm. moving them to market. Which that seems to be one of the biggest issues with, with producing right. some of those. Exactly. Exactly. So if some of that was giving us other opportunities, you'd have less people growing corn then we have that kind of situation where this, the supply and the demand starts evening out a bit. And you don't have to just have masses of corn and, and maybe nowhere to, for it to go. And I was just reading this year, you know, we're having some 
there's some pretty major issues on the horizon where some of the hugest purchasers of this of of the corn and beans, namely China, Mexico, are turning elsewhere. Like there's cheaper land with cheaper labor growing commodities, which has been always the system is like the commodities de- demand cheap land, cheap labor. Um, so if you can turn to Brazil cutting down the rainforest, you know, and growing corn and beans, why not purchase it from there? So I think that that is a bigger issue than people are paying attention to because that's the kind of move away from a market that doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you don't start rebuying from the more expensive place. Um, once you've made the move to the less expensive place that, that doesn't seem in business terms, that doesn't really happen very so often. On a scale one to 10, 10 being scared to death. How, how much does that make you nervous? Well, we're not in that game, so I'm, I'm and just here. hypothetically speaking, because I think, I mean, that's the majority of the country or majority of the Midwest. I think it's a huge opportunity, right? Like if you can, if you can, if we can have people diversify and we can be growing different things in this, in the same state, you know, I, I think that's a huge opportunity. I don't see that as a scary thing at all. I think what would become scary is, is that the climate continues to change. We're having less and less, um, you know, actual food grown in this country. Uh, You know, pandemics happen, trade wars happen, and suddenly where are we getting our fruits and vegetables? That to me is a much scarier future. Interesting. Okay. Now this is, this I found this to be really interesting. I I always enjoy following land prices and understanding different market cycles. And then there was a, a part in the book that talked about in 1819 that land prices in Pennsylvania went from 100, or excuse me, 1850 went from 150 dollars to 35 dollars, which is huge. Do you think with how much wealth is associated with land that a drop like that could happen again? And this might be outside your scope, but I'm just asking for your cut opinions. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's why people are worried about interest rates in farm country. I mean, it's kind of, you know, very similar to the 80s farm crisis situation where that that is what happened, you know, during the farm crisis is that land values went so high and then the the economy turned and um, interest rates skyrocketed and it became a situation. I mean, I think it hit 20% of, you know, it was not, people just started losing their farms. I will give a plug for Sarah Vogel's book um, that's called The uh, Farmer's Lawyer, where she actually talks about the farm crisis in a legal standpoint. She was the, uh, the, the lawyer that represented the class action suit against the USDA um, when farmers were losing their their farms. And it was more complicated than just, you know, people got into bad debt. There was a lot of, there was a lot of shenanigans as well. But, um, you know, I think that's what people are worried about, but not so worried that they're not 
buying land for $20,000 an acre. So, I mean, I think we're in a really interesting time, right? Because everything's gone up in price. We have this inflation problem. People are complaining about food prices in the store. And yet Tyson's made twice as much money as they did the year before. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the food companies are not having problems. They are not losing money when everybody is complaining about inflation. They're just raising the prices. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and people are paying it. So that's part of what happened like with eggs, right? There was a dip in the in the supply. The demand stayed really high. And so they just kept raising and raising the prices because people would pay for it. Um, yeah. And, you know, those companies did not suffer. So we're in an interesting situation where, you know, I think the wealth disparities have become pretty extreme. Um, but there's a lot of money floating around looking for a place to put it, you know, and, when and farmland has been popular to, to right. hedge against that inflation. Right. Which is what happens as well. Like we've seen this, you know, even in the early 2000s when we had when we had, you know, stock mar- market crisis and bank problems and all of a sudden where did people put their money land, you know, so. It's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what to say about the farmland prices, but I will say, okay, I'll give a big plug here. I will say that looking at land as an investment and an investment only is, um, I believe, detrimental to society. Right. Why, why is that? There's a very passionate base here that loves investing yeah. in land. So I we really have to look at land as something much more important than just an investment. It is not like buying a car where cars depreciate. <laughs> I mean, I, I won't say that, but it it's not just, it's not a thing to have and to acquire and to amass. Mm-hmm. Land is important for all of us that we're all paying attention to it and caretaking it. And, you know, not just looking for the highest renter and, you know, dumping pesticides all over it or what doing whatever we want to do because it's mine, 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 right? It's a common thing. We all are here together. And even if my fence line is right there and your fence, you know, you have that property next door, surprised what you do impacts me mm-hmm. and impacts everybody in this region and i would say everybody on this planet so what i would challenge is well a lot of a lot of the people that listen to this that buy land i think they're probably the, are really great stewards of the land so i think i think maybe the counter to that is the people that there's two there's two frames of references it's like there's the people that do want to maximize profits and so they'll, they'll auction off the, the cash rent and whoever pays the most, no matter what the farming practices are, is going to get it. And I think there's another large demographic that does look at CRP programs, although it might be a little slightly less return, um, arguably better for the environment. And then, I mean, I planted 2000 trees this year. <laughs> it's because I, it's because I thoroughly enjoy it. And, uh, but I also see just the long-term appreciation of land too. And then what I enjoy about it is the ability to, to put your DNA on it and obviously a positive DNA uh, fingerprint on it too. So that, that's just 
my frame of reference around it. But I think I think it's important. I think it's so important. I mean, it's if you if you're you know if you're listening to this and you're somebody who just you know you're just interested in the investment and you you probably didn't make it all the way through my interview, but you <laughs> we'll clip this. We're gonna have clips. Yeah. <laughs> you're still listening. You know, I would just pitch to you that. This situation of everybody out for themselves and making as much money as you can and kind of exploiting resources and exploiting the land for your benefit, you know, you've that attitude has gotten us in some pretty heavy doo-doo at this point. And, you know, I... I will not be here to see, and you will not be here to see the benefits of many of those trees. Mm-hmm. And it's money out of our pockets. And yes, it's you putting your DNA on the landscape, but it's also giving a hoot about our common, our common good. You know, whether it's my great, 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 great grandkids or it's somebody else's. It doesn't matter. It's like I want it to be here and be better than when I left it. And mm-hmm. if this, you know, if this planet really had no signs of my being here, besides my book, <laughs> um, I, I think that would be awesome. Uh-huh. No detrimental signs, maybe just all positive. I was just gonna say, oh yeah, maybe maybe yeah. positive signs would be less. Yeah, exactly. No. Do something for somebody else. Plant a tree. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, and then anything, because I, there's, I, I encourage anyone to go read this book. Cause I think even if you have differing opinions, I think the book's still probably for you too, because there's just a lot of good information and uh, just self-provoking dialogue is kind of what it, what it causes. At least that's what it caused me to do. It's like really well, think and, and look at yeah. this. And I, again, it's like, it's made to be empathetic to people. There's not, I, I, I probably sound more passionate and preachy here than the book ever really gets. Um, you know, I don't, I really just hearing different perspectives. It's, it's so underrated right now. Like we're all in this mode of just like, well, I don't believe in that. So I'm not going to pay attention to that. You know, it's no, we all have something important to add to this. So yeah, I hope that it, the book is, um, you know, it's really not, political in nature. I mean, it has, it, it kind of tries to present some of the facts and talk about things like, you know, important things like land, <laughs> like, you know, what we're doing um, and, and, and how we're behaving certainly, but it, but it's done in a way that I think is much more open and I hope eye opening. And I think that, you know, it, it was really, I wrote, a lot of it because I thought after 25 years of reporting on food and agriculture, if I don't know these things, there's a good chance that other people don't. And yeah. so that was my intention. Yeah. Two other, two, two other questions here. So yeah. you talked about bigger is not necessarily always better. Mm-hmm. And then you guys have, you know, operated a business here for a while. Have you, and then the talk, there's a chapter talking about the, the in-town job. So how most farmers, you know, Husband, wife, wife works in town, husband works on the farm. Have, are, is that, is your guys' farm 100% like a, a sustainable business? Like, is it a viable, a viable business? If, if that's okay to ask? Yeah, no, that's definitely okay to ask. The farm um, is paying for itself. The farm is not paying for vacations and cars. 
Um, and I think an important thing to remember about farms is the capital investment that's needed to even start. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's, I think, one of the toughest parts, even in programs where trying to get, you know, new farmers up and running, we forget about, you know, things like tractors and cattle. I mean, so many capital expenses. So much capital. So, no, it's it has not paid uh, for its capital. Is that fair to say? We put in probably $20,000 initially. Um, and, you know, there was family-owned land, so we got a discounted price for leasing it. Um, but that, I think we are, I don't think we paid ourselves back that in, initial investments. Um, and we are, you know, we have a kind of money pit of a a barn house, I call it now, that we're building that's just, um, you know, constantly needs more money put into it. But it's going to be a cool place to stay. And we're going to have classes and things here and, um, you know, small events, very small events, um, Airbnb stays, that kind of thing. So it'll it'll probably start paying for itself but again probably not the capital investment ever okay interesting okay and then uh, you mentioned uh, when i first reached out talking about doing a land back for native tribes that's something that i'm completely oblivious to so i just kind of want to get a i just want to educate me a little bit on that yeah so there's a whole movement called land back it's a native led um movement where um it's it's about returning land to native um, native control. Um, it's it's um, I'm kind of in the middle of talking with um, there's there's a person of a Meskwaki um, woman who I'm working with uh, Meskwaki is who's in in Iowa um, about land back and trying to really kind of think out about how it would work in Iowa. Um, you know, we are in the position on our farm where there's four kids of the next generation. Um, none of them are showing much interest. There's one that might end up here, but um, maybe another one might live out here, but probably not farm. So, you know, it's a lot of work to put in with all with rotating cattle and doing regenerative ag and getting oak savanna back. And, you know, the idea that um, we would even be giving it to our kids who might then just lease it out and there goes all the trees or, you know, who knows what happens. It's really, um, that's, a, that's a notion that I really, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm very passionate about trying to figure out what will happen in the future because there's um currently a lot of like land easements where people say okay I'm going to put a conservation easement let's say on my land or mm -hmm. um there's even easements now that say uh food has to be grown like not not commodity crops for non-food um and I think that's all that's all fine. You know, I, I'm not critiquing people who want to do that. But for me, I really feel like the concept of regenerative ag 
is that there's generations like right regen the generations are like in the middle there and are critical to the piece to this puzzle so it's really the people and when i think about who that might be you know who's been the people who have been here for thousands of years taking care of land to me that might be native american uh, groups, because obviously that's been a, a well-proven, you know, they're here, they were here, and they will continue to be here. Um, so the land back has happened in, in a more, in different states, in a, in a much more sophisticated way. There has not been any land really um, re returned in this way to the Meskwaki. And Really, what kind of needs to happen is is that there might be different entities outside of just the tribal nations even that will then control the land. So sort of like an American farmland trust, but natively controlled. Mm. And so then it's not one specific tribe and one specific tribal council, but that there's potentially you know, uh, groups of people that then could manage uh, the land in different ways. But there's a lot of things to work out because, I mean, like, for example, we're over an hour away from the Meskwaki tribe, tribal region right now. Um, and, you know, what would they do with this piece of land all the way out here, you know, in places that people might not be that hospitable towards them, you know? Um, so it, it's there's a lot to figure out about it for for us, but I think it's a really exciting way of thinking about the land. Again, even if it's not just like, just it doesn't have to be about us and our family necessarily, right? Like, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, yes, we want our kids to, we want our kids to have things and to benefit from our lives and to pass on a certain amount of nostalgia and sentimentality and and even land sometimes but if they're not going to use it and they're not going to be here what i what is the purpose of that you know they could come back and visit once a year and then the rest of the year somebody has to lease it out so it's they're very interesting questions i think but important ones so how on a high level how does that work exactly does that do they buy it do you is it like a tax break or like what's the financial mechanics of it mm, i think that um a lot of things like when you put it in even out of the sustainable iowa land trust for example when you put things into certain kinds of easements um you then receive a tax break on that um, and then, so it kind of offsets the drop in price, like the word, how much the land would be worth. Mm -hmm. Um, in this situation, it's kind of so new here that we don't, we're trying to actually <laughs> develop, yeah. yeah, like to develop the, like, how to, how would, how would it work? How would the, how would you deal with taxes? Would they pay? Um, are there like funds that could be created for them to be able to buy the land that's then contiguous 
and in one location? Or would you want like little, you know, homesteads all over the state might get really unruly for any group to try and deal with? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's part of what we're really trying to do is to think out how it would actually work and make a little bit of a how-to guide for people. Awesome. Well, I really, I really appreciate your time here, Beth. I think it, it's a very uh, thought-provoking conversation. Um, and I also, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the book too. So I encourage anyone to go check that out. Where can people find uh, what you have going on? Um, well, you can find Beth the Farm, um, the dollars and cents of growing food in America, you know, anywhere where books are sold, Amazon, um, book, book, what is that called? Bookseller books. I forget what that's called online, but it goes through independent bookshops or obviously places like dog-eared books and Beaverdale books, wonderful places. Um, I also have a Substack um, column that I write. It's called In the Dirt. And um, I can give you the, the stuff to put in the notes for the show. Yeah. Um, and so I've been actually writing what actually has been called um, Farm Meditations the past several weeks so they're kind of like you know using observations and things that are going on on the farm to think about things in a sort of a deeper sense um which has been really fun um yeah and we are at iowa-farm.com is where you can find us our farm is whippoorwill creek farm we'll certainly appreciate it well, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. There you guys have it. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Until next time, be sure to use the code VFAST23 to save 15% off the entire Exodus website or check out the weekly deals we have rolling on. So that is it. Hope you guys have an excellent week. Until next time, see you guys.